0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Imposter. That's right, the podcast dedicated to making science more fun and engaging and enjoyable for you, the listening audience. Or general public, really, honestly, anybody who is listening to this right now, this is for you, goddammit. This is tailor-made just for you because you are special like that, you know what I'm saying? Uh, anyway, so we've gotten a lot of great feedback and support from everyone recently, which, first off, thank you for that. It really means a lot, so keep it coming. Don't forget to like and share us. Spread the imposter around. Spread it like herpes. Um, and some of that feedback has taken the form of requesting that we have Duncan Morton come back on, which I'm happy to do because I love Duncan. For those of you that don't remember, he is the Angry, opinionated, and brilliant uh, blogger at thoughtyououghtourknow.blogspot.co.uk. He has posts regularly. The last one was very interesting, pretty much shitting on Jurassic Park and how it's all full of lies. Uh, So anyway, he he does a lot of really cool blogs. Check him out, thoughtyououghtourknow.blogspot.co.uk. And uh, without further ado, let's take another sneak peek
1: into the angry mind of Duncan Morton. Take it away, sir. Hey, everybody. Duncan here. Today is the start of an epic two-part rant focused around humanity's quest to eradicate every other species on the goddamn planet. Part one, poaching. Alright, so first, a brief uh, definition of poaching and some of the negative impacts it has. Poaching is defined as the illegal hunting, killing, or capturing of wild animals Uh, is often associated with species that are listed as endangered or which are protected under some form of legislation. Now this can result in the extinction of both the target species and any related species when the ecosystem is thrown out of balance. It can also result in the spread of diseases such as Ebola, SARS, and HIV through the consumption of contaminated meat. Now poaching is a pretty broad topic so I've broken it down into two sections based on the stupid f-ing excuses given for killing endangered or protected animals, and we'll only be focusing on a few key species. First up, traditional medicine, which threatens a range of species, including rhinos and tigers, the two I will be speaking about today. So tigers are listed as an endangered species by the IUCN Red List with an estimated 2,500 mature individuals left in the wild. Some of the fucking ridiculous uses for tiger parts in traditional medicine include strengthening willpower, curing laziness, and removing fevers caused by ghosts. The most widely used part of these highly endangered animals is their bones, which are used to treat arthritis, back problems, headaches, and general weakness. You know what is proven to work for these ailments and doesn't require the intentional killing of endangered species? Fucking aspirin! Or any other generic painkiller you can find in any goddamn drugstore in the f***ing world. To be fair, uh, China, and traditional Chinese medicine has been the largest factor behind tiger poaching, banned the trade of tiger bone in 1993, and very few pharmacies openly carry remedies containing tiger parts. But this hasn't appeared to have had an effect. Uh, The Environmental Investigation Agency estimates that one tiger is killed per day for use in traditional Chinese medicine, and the IUCN says that breeding populations have decreased by 20% over the last two generations. As for rhinos, in the 12 months prior to April 2015, so April of last year, South Africa Saw a record number of rhinos killed or mutilated for their horns, with a total of 393 found dead. This following the extinction of the northern black rhino in 2011. Powdered rhino horn has been described as a cure for cancer, gout, snake bites, hallucinations, hangovers, and. and this one is my favorite. Demon possession. F***ing demon possession. Not only is there been no evidence that Rhino Horn c- cures or even affects any of these conditions, except possibly as a placebo, there is a much more abundant and easily acquirable source of this precious material available to you should you feel the need to invest time in this ridiculous fantasy. Rhino Horn is made of keratin. You know what else is made of keratin? Your f***ing hair. And your fingernails. So the next time you you get possessed by a cancer demon, try chewing on your nails first. If that doesn't work, maybe go see a doctor. Finally, I want to talk about what I think is the most egregious and outrageous excuse for poaching. And that is aphrodisiacs. People going out and killing animals for various bits of their anatomy because they can't get it up. This is absolutely disgusting, and it is horrifyingly widespread both geographically and across species. Claims range from using powdered rhino horn to cure impotence, eating tiger penis to increase sex drive and dick size, and eating sea turtle eggs and tails to increase sexual potency. Not only are none of these claims based on any sort of scientific evidence whatsoever, but the continuing belief in these myths is incredibly dangerous and damaging to the species involved. Green sea turtles, for example, in Baja California it's estimated that 30,000 turtles are killed every year from egg poaching. And in the Caribbean, sea turtle tails are a popular aphrodisiac, and are often hacked off of living turtles who are left mutilated. So yeah, I don't even know what to say about that, except that it's disgusting and just horrible. That's all I've got for now. Uh, Check back in next episode, where I'll talk about shark finning and all of the issues that entails. Uh, Thanks for listening to me and for checking out the podcast. If you want to see more of my stuff, check out my blog, ThoughtYouta Know, at blogspot.com. Back to you, Fogel.
0: Wow, well thank you once again, Duncan, for perverting my mind with your horrible profanities of the tongue, while simultaneously giving me sweet, sweet, brilliant nourishment of knowledge. So I don't know how you managed to hone that skill so finely, but you should take that show on the road, damn it. Hmm. Yes, yes. All right, moving on. So I found myself browsing the interwebs. And uh, I happened to come across this site called themeatinstitute.org. And I know what you're thinking. A guy on on the internet, you know, on a website called Meat Institute, probably not the best combination. Actually, it's not a nudie website. Get your mind out of the gutter, you perv, all right? No, it is actually a website set up by the North American Meat Institute, or NAMI. Probably one of the best acronyms I've heard in a long time. And I'm just going to read off some numbers right now. So in 2013, American meat companies produced 25.8 billion pounds of beef, 23.2 billion pounds of pork, 5.8 billion pounds of turkey, 286 million pounds of veal, lamb, and mutton, and 38.4 billion pounds of chicken. Now I know what you're thinking. Where's the duck at? I love duck, you love duck, who doesn't love duck? They're definitely a bit biased, you know what I'm saying? Now, the second bit is having to do with the environmental impact of all of this. So for those of you that have seen the documentary Cowspiracy, I know I've definitely drank the Cowspiracy Kool-Aid. It's all about the impact that, um, you know, domesticating and farming animals on an industrial level has on the environment. It's definitely a film with an agenda, don't get me wrong, but show me a film that doesn't have an agenda. So, there you go. One more little fact I'm going to mention from this MeatInstitute.org website, which the link will be posted in the blog, is, and I quote, the meat and poultry poultry industry's economic ripple effect generates $864.2 billion annually to the U.S. economy, or roughly 6% of the entire GDP. Now, I'm throwing all these numbers at you, not to confuse you, but to give you the sheer volume, and how massive the animal industry really is. And that's just in the States. Imagine what it is globally. So I just want to give you some picture of how much we've integrated having domesticated and farmed animals into our everyday lives. However, this episode is actually not going to be about the commercial farming industry, at least not directly about it. See what I did there? I kind of held this This giant grid concept in front of you and then I took it away like a knowledge mirage and it just disappeared. But anyway, this episode is actually going to be the start of a series of episodes that's going to be investigating different products on the market that have animal ingredients in them. And I gotta say, you would be surprised by how many different products there are that have animal ingredients. Now, because this is such a vast topic, we're just gonna focus on a few, which is why it's gonna be a series. And I'm going to try and make these shorter because some of the feedback we've gotten is these episodes are a bit long. So today's episode is going to be about animal ingredients in glues and adhesives. Now, I will give you fair warning. This episode is a bit more history-based than it is science-based. But we do mention the impact science played on the history of adhesives and glues. So let's get this show on the road. We live in an age based on science and technology with formidable technological powers. And if we don't understand it, by we I mean the general public, if it's something that, oh, I'm not good at that, I don't know anything about it, then who is making all the decisions about science and technology that uh, are going to determine what kind of future our children live in? We've really got to start at the earliest levels with having a broader view what education really can and should be. Because I find that with the young people we have, we are able to motivate them. Science is all around us, it's in us. Knowledge of science is power, it gives you an understanding of the forces of nature. It's not even about how much science you know, it's about how science literature. everyone and welcome back to the Imposter Podcast, the podcast that frankly is made for you, but by me. So you know, get over yourself. Anyway, so as I said before, uh, this is a bit more of a history podcast than it is a sciencey one. So apologies for those of you that were expecting something else. Um, but you're gonna have to live with it. Hopefully you'll find it interesting. Uh, and I gotta say, in doing the research for this episode, uh, and kind of the series, I was bombarded by so much interesting information all about kind of the history of agriculture and domestication. And so I have decided that I am going to actually cover this topic, but in a later on podcast, maybe I'll have a guest on to kind of go through that all. But until then, let's tackle the lesser known side of it all when we're talking about um, kind of products with animal ingredients in it. So as I said, we're going to be talking about adhesives and glues. Um, and just before we get started, I want to take the time to thank Dr. Tom Pope from Harper's Adams, Harper Adams University, uh, who helped me with some of the research for this uh, episode, and it was very much greatly appreciated. So thank you, Dr. Pope. Now... I figured let's let's organize ourselves a little bit, you know? Uh let's let's start from the macro. Let's let's get the big picture, let's zoom out, and then we'll kind of get into it that way. So I, I think let's let's take it back to the human relationship with the natural world. You know, we humans we've we've forced and forged this kind of special relationship with the animal kingdom over many, many thousands of years, and you know that, that relationship has taken many different forms, whether it's it's mutualism, or predation, or if you want to go there, parasitism, or you know, many other different uh, forms. And so, over time, you know, and through all parts of the world where there was different tribes and, you know, various populations of humans, uh, everybody seemed to learn, through trial and error, how to exploit and benefit from certain plants and animals. and those exploitations helped us realize what tools we need to make survival more efficient. And that leads us to kind of, in a very brief way of saying it, to where we are now. Now, I think it's only fair to give some credit to the fact that had we not hunted animals, we probably wouldn't have discovered that we could make various tools like glue and adhesives and weapons and whatnot from their various body parts. Uh, so you have to mention the food part of it, the food part of our survival in order to get to, you know, the, the other part. And, and I'm reminded by a lesson that I learned when I, I think I was in second grade. So I must have been around seven or eight. And we had a lesson on Native Americans and about, you know, their relationship to nature. And especially when they would go hunting, um, they would use as much of the animal as they could. So, you know, if they were going to hunt a buffalo, they would use other parts of the buffalo, like the skin and uh, various organs. They would use, you know, for example, the bladder to carry liquids like water. And, you know, I really have to respect that utilization of, you know, and in- in ingenuity to use every part or as many parts as you can of an animal. It shows respect both to, you know, the animal you killed, but it also shows that you're thinking of new ways to survive. And that is, I think one of the reasons why us humans have been so successful. So I wanted to take that idea, and bear with me now, you're gonna follow my train of thought, and see if it can apply to kind of today, where we have these large farming and agriculture industries that, you know, mainly are used for our sustenance. But do they use any other parts of the animal, or byproducts of the plants, or, you know, vegetables, whatever, for other purposes, for other products? And it turns out we do. We use uh, quite a lot, and I don't know if you know. There's still that same amount of respect that maybe the, Mer- the Native Americans did and still do, probably. Um, but the market is big, and so that's how we arrived at investigating the other side of animal production, seeing what other products use both plants and animals in their ingredients, um, and so. I think a good place to start is with adhesives and glue because it actually played a pretty big part throughout history and still does today. I know I couldn't live without duct tape and Gorilla Glue, it's definitely an essential. Anyway, let's find out a bit more about the history of glues and adhesives. When constructing a piece of furniture, or building a house, or making a model airplane, or just being that asshole that sets up a horrible April Fool's Day prank, One of the common tools that's been used for thousands of years by us humans is glues and adhesives. Now, I did find two different definitions for glues and adhesives. One is that for glue, it's a more basic material uh, and it's more easily prepared. Where in contrast, adhesives tend to be a combination of materials that are permanently changed through various other processes and techniques. Uh, I did also happen to find that some people think glue and adhesive is interchangeable, so take it as you wish. But anyway, the history of glues and adhesives actually are quite, quite long. I mean, it goes back thousands of years, and I, I have seen some conflicting dates, uh, and I think the primary literature uh, agrees or points to that the kind of first evidence of Adhesives and glues, if we're going to use them interchangeably, dates back to about 200,000 years ago. The Homo heidelbergensis, which is a now extinct ancestor of the Neanderthals, uh, was found to use this adhesive made from the birch bark, and it was a kind of tar made from birch bark, and it was used to glue uh, basically stones to wood to make spears. And so that is, uh, I think, some of the first evidence they have. I think that was carbon dated. And the next, the next kind of runner-up is about 70,000 years ago, where they found, um, instead of for spears, they found the tree sap was used to preserve cave paintings in South Africa. So for you art folks, paint restoration goes back many thousands of years. Did not know that. So there you go. Anyway, what seems to be agreed upon, no matter who you are, is that definitely from 6,000 years ago onwards, peoples from all around the world, many different ancient civilizations, like ancient Egyptians, ancient Chinese, the Mayans, the Incans, the Aztecs, Babylonians, Native Americans, Mongols, I mean the list really, it goes on and on. They all used various different glues and adhesives, whether it was made from tree sap, or other plants, or animal-based glues and adhesives. I mean, they all kind of had their own versions of it, you know? Um, and so the kind of process in which these glues and adhesives were made were actually somewhat similar, it seems. And essentially what would, what they would do is they would collect different uh, different parts of an animal, so either the blood or the bones, the skin, the cartilage. Um, if it was plants, they would, you know, collect different plants or vegetables, or beeswax or trees and they would clean them all and then they would boil them and after they were boiled you would get another substance that they would strain out and essentially that strained uh, output would be what they would essentially use now they could also use that straight as it's kind of warm and gooey then and use that as a a glue and adhesive or they could wait for it to dry out and then they would crush it down into a powder and it could be a, uh, you know, glue and adhesive for whenever they want it. Just add water. You know, there you go. Bada bing, bada boom. So yeah. So that's a very brief rundown of the process of kind of how they made these glues and adhesives um, back then. Now I'm sure there were different methods depending on uh, where you were and which civilization it was, and also which you know which part of the animal you're using. The uh, Sumerians around I think 3000 BCE made a glue called sea out of animal skin, I believe, and, uh, you know, that was just, that's just one example, but that was a specific type of glue. Now, I think it's interesting to point out that it does depend where you are. So, you know, if you are a more coastal nation, you might not have as much access to the right sorts of plants and animals that might give you the best kind of glue and adhesive. So, what do you do? You look to the ocean. So, there you have it, that coastal civilizations like Greece and, and the Egyptians and, you know, the Romans, they made glue from the swim bladders of fish. And that actually became quite prevalent and quite a popular method. And this was actually um, done in a similar sort of process. The swim bladder, which is also known as isenglass, uh, was used in an, as in, in an adhesive and uh, is actually I believe, still used to some extent today. Now, uh, an interesting side note is actually that the Romans back in the ancient times, you know, they they loved to have their fermented alcoholic beverages. I mean, even back then they liked to get shwasted. Um, and what they found is that when they had uh, alcoholic drinks and they put them in pouches that were kind of sealed and were... Um, not transparent so like a swim bladder or a uh, a pot of some sort you know as long as it was shielded from the sun the alcohol would maybe last a bit longer and so they would put them a bit more in the swim bladders because they realized that the alcohol would last longer so they start putting you know their alcoholic beverages in these swim bladders more and more and they start to realize that they're you know, alcoholic drinks are actually clearer when they're coming out of the swim bladders. Now, fast forward to the 1800s, and this actually starts to become a scientific art of brewing. And they found that uh, these swim bladders, these Isinglass of fish, they actually have a lot of collagen in it, which is a great protein to have when you break it down, grind it up, and use it in brewing beer. And what essentially happens in a very rough summary is that they put these refined versions of these swim bladders in that contain collagen, and the collagen uh, acts kind of like as a, as a mesh that attracts the yeast in the brew, and it kind of uh, um, positively attracts the, the yeast particles to the collagen particles and creates larger and larger balls. And these balls of kind of yeast and collagen sink to the bottom of the glass and thus making the actual drink itself more clear. And that all kind of stemmed from the ancient Romans when they when they found out that drinking out of swim bladders uh, happened to make their alcoholic beverages a bit clearer. Uh, now also an interesting fact is that it depended on the fish. Traditionally, I believe it was sturgeon swim bladders that were used. Now, you you know, you can't find them as prevalently, so they use different uh, different swim bladders from different fish species, and apparently it makes a difference in the taste and whatnot. But the point is, next time you're drinking some beer or wine, and you look to the bottom of your glass, um, and you see some kind of large blobs and uh, sediment, that might be collagen from a fish bladder. So fun little fact right there. So you can um, go ahead and say that at the next party. Pull that one out, and probably no one will care. But... Anyway, back to the ancient Greeks. So, the Greeks, they actually had an official job of boiling down and creating glue. And they even gave it a name. It's Calypsos, I believe, in Greek, in my flawless Greek accent. Um, now, it is important to point out that we we actually think that it wasn't the Greeks that had the first um, first profession of glue making, it might have been uh, the ancient Egyptians. And I say that because the Egyptians actually had glue used widely throughout their culture, Uh, whether it was um, for creating beauty products or pottery, or a lot of it went into mummifying and the coffins and, uh, you know, bandages and stuff like that. So... You get the picture. If it, if it was that prevalent and popular in society and that widely used, you might assume that they probably had designated people to do it. Now, this begs the question. If they had people de- designated to create glue, and if the ancient Greeks did, and the Romans, uh, you, you might find that if this is a livelihood, their product probably isn't that bad, and in fact, there's evidence around the world, my friends. You go to a museum today, and you can find evidence by looking at, like I said, mummy coffins, or uh, furniture from a while back, pottery, um, uh, coins that are happened for some reason to be glued onto a box. The point is, these structures, these, you know, antiques by definition you know, are still around. They're still physically standing. And so, while I don't advise anybody to break into any exhibits and try and test the actual strength and durability of ancient glues, I will just say it is a testament to, you know, one fine damn good product. All right, but let's, let's jump back. You know, I started to mention some of the different purposes that these kind of glues and adhesives had. So, there were a lot some, like uh, glues made from tree sap, were used to preserve paintings, as I mentioned, or repair pottery. Others, like the more complex uh, adhesives and glues made from different flora and fauna, uh, were used to make boats watertight or to strengthen bricks when they were being used to build houses. Now, a great example of this is with the Aztecs. Oh, I love Aztec culture I find it fascinating and in this case what they would do is they would add blood to cement mixtures and that would be used to strengthen the actual structures now the scientific process behind this is that there's a protein in blood called albumin and albumin is the most abundant plasma protein uh, in the body I believe and is produced in the liver so albumin actually has a few jobs. One of it is to transport small molecules in the blood throughout the body. It also happens to be a binding agent for toxins and heavy metals. I might say that's pretty important. Another job it has is that it helps to retain osmotic pressure in the body. Basically, to make sure that your skin doesn't ooze out blood from all of its pores and you don't just walk around like you're some sort of bloody river monster or something. So, uh, that might be one of the reasons why it was so helpful in being a binding agent. Now, just as a quick side note, this is not to be confused with albumen. That's spelled A-L-B-U-M-E-N, whereas albumin is A-L-B-U-M-I-N. Men with an E, is the egg whites. That's that's egg whites, and it's uh, common, common confused item. so just wanted to put that out there. All right, so that's one example. The Aztecs used blood to strengthen their bricks. Some other uses for these glues and adhesives might have been to advance weaponry, like bows and arrows and spears. The Mongols, Genghis Khan, uh, you know, had uh, bone, bone arrows that were very powerful and had very good range, uh, and definitely was one of the reasons that gave them an edge in battle. Uh, Native Americans and various tribes from South and East Africa also used uh, adhesives based from resins from plants and animal fats to bind their bows and spears, um, making paint even, if you want to consider that a wartime technology. Some other uses were to, like I said, build furniture, uh, make clothing, make paper, even prosthetics, which I think is fascinating that they actually use prosthetics, you know, in ancient civilizations. There was a mummy that was found with a prosthetic toe, I believe it was from about 600 BC, maybe, Uh, but... The point is, you know, was that for aesthetic purposes, or was that for, you know, practical purposes to help them balance and walk better? Who knows? But I find it fascinating either way. So I'm confronted with this thought, which is, you know, we have this capacity for such tribal and predatory and violent behavior. But on the other hand, we also have this capacity for higher mental processing. And so it's such it's such an interesting crossroads because one has to wonder, you know what what is the amalgamation of all of these things? You know, Would we not have had all these advances in technology that is useful in all of the realms of daily life had it not been for wartime, you know uh, necessity for, you know, originally gluing the stones to the wood to make spears? but now we're making prosthetic limbs and uh, and building houses out of the glue that we've had. So just something interesting to ponder. So when talking about ancient civilizations, I think an interesting part to think about is the societal implications and how prevalent it was in society. So for you biblical folk, I'm talking to you, Moisha. you know what I'm saying? Uh... There are a few references in the Bible to glues. And and I was reading this book called Adhesive Bonding, Science, Technology, and Applications. Now, I say that a bit sarcastically, but truthfully, there was actually some pretty cool stuff in it. Um, but they they point out that there's quite a few biblical references of using glue. One example is in the building of the Tower of Babel. Another is the basket of Moses. And apparently, uh, Moses' basket was using uh, casein glue, which is a glue made from milk protein, uh, which is also the similar process that is used to make cheese. So there you go. Uh, but there's also references to Noah's Ark. So they, they all have these kind of brief mentions of using glue to construct different things and to stick one to the other. And there's a quote from Jeremiah 1911 that uh, this adhesive bonding book uh, likes to use, which is, and I quote, as one breaks a potter's vessels so that it can never be mended, end quote. Now, that can infer a few different things. Uh, it either means that the they can repair pottery, it means that they couldn't repair pottery, or it means that the days of consumerism are biblical. They are Long time. That's right. The Dixie Cup generation is thousands of years old. You break your pottery? All right, just get a new one. Lord Almighty. Anyway, so as access to writing materials and written language was becoming more prevalent, uh, you would expect that eventually there might be a glue recipe somewhere. So some people like to point that around 200 BCE, this might have been around the time that the first glue-making recipe was written down. I can say that definitely by 50 BCE, Titus Lucretius Carus, the Roman poet and philosopher, definitely wrote about glue, and he wrote about glue made from bulls. And when I say bulls, I don't know which part. I'm assuming it's probably bulls' testicles, because for some reason, people love to talk about bulls' testicles. I don't want any of that in, or near, or around my mouth, or other orifices, but hey, everybody's got their own thing, not knocking it, do, do, do what makes you happy, I, I suppose, but anyway, so as, uh, as Titus, great name, uh, documented this glue making, he also was doing different experiments with different materials and different methods, and so the scientific process of making glue began. Now... Fast forward a hundred years after Lucretius Carus, and uh, we have Pliny the Elder, and he was another Roman who wrote about many different types of glues and adhesives and even sealants. Now, what made Pliny the Elder, which, by the way, great name also, was that he kind of took it a step further. And I don't mean with bull's testicles. No, you see, Pliny the Elder actually tried to figure out which materials worked best with which adhesives. I mean, what a guy, right? Now, not too far away, in Greece, there was a fellow named Padanius Dioskundes. That's horrible pronunciation. I apologize, my Greek is atrocious. Now, this dude was a pretty cool guy. He was a botanist, he was a doctor, and uh, he discovered that there were some medical benefits to certain diseases and repairing wounds that you could treat with glue. And, um... You know, some of those medical benefits we still use today. I have a friend, uh, Jonathan, who cut his knee open and they glued the uh, cut back up. So there you go. All right. So now we get to a point in the history of glues and adhesives that's a bit murky. And the reason why is because there's just not that much out there for the next a thousand years. So there's two primary schools of thought as to why that may be. One is that societies just kind of found alternatives to glue and adhesives, and they weren't as widely used, and so they were kind of phased out for a bit. The second school of thought is that actually they were used quite frequently, and they were still very prevalent in societies. However, there wasn't much advances in the technology of glue and adhesives, so there wasn't much written about it. But you can choose which, you know, theory you subscribe to. And you do it on your own time, damn it. Anyway, so... There, there wasn't much going on, so let's kind of jump to about a thousand years later, maybe a bit more, and we get to the 1600s. Now, the science behind glue-making was picking up steam in this 17th century of ours, and around 1620, Novum Organum Scientarium, the book by scientist and philosopher Francis Bacon, uh, started to toy with the idea of bonding and cohesion. Now, this was followed up by Galileo's uh, lovely dialogue concerning two sciences of 1638. Now, these guys are writing about glues while, you know, the world is going on around them. You know, you have the popularity of fine furniture making and, and uh, construction of housing booming and, and even books. Uh, the fact that more people were becoming literate and learning to read and uh, bookmaking was becoming a more of a profession. Uh, And combine that with the ever-expanding population and and trade routes even. And it all kind of leads us to the creation of the first industrial glue factory in the then-young country of Holland in 1690. And so now that we have the first kind of glue factory, the industry has begun. And you know what? it didn't take long for the glue industry to spread throughout the rest of Europe. And this leads us to the first patent for glue, which, by the way, was for a fish glue, to be made in Britain around 1750. Now, as with most businesses, this spurred competition and many other patents for glue followed suit. And if you want to get dramatic about it, it kind of becomes like the space race throughout Europe to see who can make the best glue. And uh, like with cheese, wines, and perfume, the French became a well-regarded world leader in the glue-making industry of Europe. And the best glue, I mean the best glue, came from Lyons, France. And I wish I could have, you know, ate that paste when I was younger. Because, you know, I, I bet that glue was frickin' delicious. Another world leader was Germany. Germany, surprise, surprise, was great for its glue-making industry. But anyway, uh, we can't forget that other stuff besides glue-making was going on in the world, a.k.a., in this respect, colonizing things and destroying already established civilizations and whatnot. And, you know, one of those most famous ones happened to be the uh, kind of, unfortunate demise of many Native American tribes in North America. For the purpose of colonies that then revolted against, uh, you know, the Queen and uh, won a Revolutionary War, 1776 we have the United States of America and now we want to get in on the glue-making game. And we did just that. Now, the U.S. started to have a few different glue and actually gelatin- factories pop up because gelatin, the gelatin industry was uh, kind of side by side with the glue because it also had similar binding properties and it was gooey. Now it's mainly used, I think, in food products like marshmallows and Skittles and whatnot. But uh, so we had these glue and gelatin factories popping up by the early 1800s in the United States. And one of the most famous glue makers was this rad guy named Peter Cooper, and he was so good at making glue that his factory still made glue up until, like, 1996. But we will talk about Mr. Mr. Cooper in a little bit because there's more to say about him. Pretty cool guy. As cool as Mr. Cooper was, though, factories that made glue were not as cool and not as popular when it came to uh, the byproducts and the stench that the factories produced. And this kind of pushed for most factories to be uh, constructed and operated further out and away from towns. This can be equated to modern-day battery farms, which also produce pretty horrible byproducts and stench, both uh, both affecting the environment and ecosystem and also the livelihood of nearby town folk. I think, though, that once the glue factories were moved outside of the town and it wasn't bothering anybody, it was okay. So on that note, Let's go inside a glue factory, and this is, I'm about to read you an account describing the process of making glue from the 1800s, and a quote. The stock is washed and treated to remove dirt and grease, then boiled to convert the glue, forming substances into a glue solution, which is concentrated by evaporation until it will form a jelly on cooling. The jelly is then dried, and the resulting product is glue, end quote. Now, what I've just described actually doesn't sound that dissimilar from the process of making glue, you know, a thousand years prior, even further back. But I think what did advance when people say that glue making advanced uh, was the techniques and the tools in which they could carry out these processes. That's how glue was made in the 19th century but let's go into the early 20th century because things start to get a bit more interesting. You see, the process for glue making began to be refined and adjusted, and this was with the help of chemists, which I think highlights something that's very important, and that is the reintroduction of science into the glue making industry. And that means that, you know, the scientific process and critical thinking and rigorous testing um, of both theories and methods and ingredients was being highlighted. And I'm going to be honest, folks, this is kind of an important thing to have if you're going to consistently try and produce a good product for the market. Because before they implemented this kind of scientific thinking, what they would do to test the strength and quality of a glue was primarily by, by smelling it, by looking at it, and by touching it. And there was no other kind of further testing done. So the possibility for having a lot of different variable outcomes of a product was very high, it was very great. And you may have many unknown factors contributing to why your product isn't consistently coming out good and you'll never know without other testing. So that's why it was so important that they kind of brought this scientific approach to glue making in the kind of early 20th century. And it's this appreciation the scientific process that sets our friend Mr. Peter Cooper apart from other glue makers. I'll just quickly remind you, Peter Cooper is the guy who had his glue factory last until 1996. And the reason why is, you know, we have this guy, Peter Cooper. He's a U.S. entrepreneur, he's a philanthropist, he's a businessman, and he wants to get into the animal glue industry. So, he starts up a factory, and he invests in research and development. What do I mean by this? Well, I'll tell you. He basically, he found a few different methods of testing strength, viscosity, durability that, you know, weren't just looking or smelling or touching a glue. You know, they were actual tests. And, you know, I think this is my own kind of anecdotal uh, opinion of him, but I think That is the same kind of drive and curiosity that often motivates scientists to, to test different theories and to have different experiments. Um, now I just want to give you a bit more information about Mr. Peter Cooper because he's so fucking cool. I mean, this dude was woke as fuck, um... I mean, this guy was a businessman. He was an entrepreneur. He was a philanthropist. He patented gelatin in 1845. He designed the first steam train in the U.S. in 1830. He even ran for president when he was 85 years old in 1876. I mean, this guy was like, he was on it. As you can tell, I kind of have a man crush on him. But uh, not only that, I think the coolest thing about him, in my opinion, is his dedication to the sciences. I mean, this guy was not just, oh yeah, I'm a businessman, I want to make glue making, let's do science, that looks like it's a good idea. I mean, his dedication extended post-mortem. He set up something called the Cooper Union for the Advancement of Science and Art. It was, a, It's a college in New York City, and it's, it's still around today. Basically, the Cooper Union, as if you couldn't tell from the title, had the goal and has the goal of spreading science and art to anyone and everyone. I mean, it was it was free tuition to the working class, but not only that, it didn't exclude by race or gender or ethnicity. I mean, it was really, really about inclusivity and, and giving anybody who wanted to learn about science and art that opportunity. And I never met the guy, so I can't judge him by character and how much he actually believed in uh, in inclusivity and if he was, you know, discriminating to other people. I don't know. I never met the guy. But... You have to at least give, you know, credence to the fact that, for the time, that was kind of unheard of. So, pretty cool. But look him up, because he's a fascinating guy, and I'm getting a bit off topic. All right, anyway, as I was saying, uh, technology was advancing, scientific methods were advancing, and with that, we we found new ways to create different glues and adhesives. And one of those is thermoplastics, which was originally made from uh, the cellulose of wood. And my kind of rough understanding of thermoplastics is that they are plastics that can change shape easily when they're heated and they harden when they're cooled and they can be done, and that that process can be done multiple times, which is why I think they're easy to recycle. So thermoplastics were invented. Plastics and rubbers, uh, you know, started to come onto the market and experienced a boom around, you know, the same time. We had synthetic adhesives. And before long, you know, we had silicon, we had epoxies, more thermoplastics, uh, more plant-based adhesives like starch. I mean, it really, it just continued to boom like that. And uh, with the exception of some animal glues, which are made special for, I believe, furniture building and, and for fixing instruments, mainly of the wooden variety, uh, that has pretty much replaced most of the animal and plant-based, plant, <laughs> blah, 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 plant-based glues on the market now. So yeah, so most of the glues and adhesives on the market today are not sourced from animal and plant-based ingredients. I mean, even the iconic Elmer's glue, which has a cow for a logo, uh, it doesn't use animal ingredients anymore. Though originally, the reason they had the cow as a logo was because it was kind of a a little uh, nod to the fact that they were using animals, uh, I guess in this case a cow. So there you have it, my friends. That is a brief history of glues and adhesives and the animal ingredients that were historically used in them. Now, we are about to end, uh, but before we do, I just want to do one last thing, which is to take a look at the future. And what what does the future hold? I think it's always important to ask that question. And it, it seems to have, actually, a beautiful kind of turn of events, whereas... You know, historically, we've sourced our glues and adhesives from animal ingredients. The future seems to be looking like we're going to base our glues and adhesives off of techniques that animals use in the natural world. So what do I mean by this? I'll tell you, little penguins. This is what I mean. Essentially, this team from UMass Amherst, which Amherst happens to be the town that uh, my undergraduate is in, uh, Hampshire College. Holla! Um, but anyway, this team from UMass, they are basically looking at the way geckos are able to climb vertically up different walls and just kind of stick to surfaces in general. And they created this adhesive called GeckoSkin, which is a layered material that essentially enhances the adhesion or the ability for something to stick to it uh, onto a surface. And the, the cool thing about this is that it's not a permanent adhesive. You know, it can... Uh, it can hold a very heavy load, but then if you twist the material in a certain way, it's easy to take off. So I'm going to post a video to their uh, to their product because it's really, really cool. Um, and I also probably did a pretty crappy job of explaining it, but check it out because it's pretty cool. Um, there are other examples of, you know... Um, adhesives and glues that are being modeled off of different animals. Another one is with mussels because mussels need to kind of attach themselves to these rocky substrates in the intertidal zones um, because, you know, when the waves are crashing on them, they need to make sure they're not just kind of floating around everywhere and getting bashed across other rocks. So they need to have a, a kind of a firm hold fast onto these rocks. And so, they're kind of modeling a glue off of the way that these muscles stick to rocks. So very fascinating stuff. I'll try and post a link to that as well on the blog. All right, y'all, I'm about to wrap this up. I just want to say one last thing, which is to thank everyone for their support. Y'all have been very, very great. And also just to say, don't forget to like and share us on Facebook. And tell your friends, tell your family if they might be interested in a podcast like The Imposter. Alright folks, thanks for listening and we will see you next time.